Hello and welcome to Climate Avengers. My name is Alina Folks, your guide and host as we discover how founders and investors are moving the needle on climate change. I'm talking with individuals who are proving that people and planet are compatible with scalable, investable businesses. I know what that means firsthand. My entire career has been in climate, and I've been through a traditional Fortune 200 company, and I've founded a climate tech company, Utility API. I raise capital for it from angels and venture firms, as well as non-dilutive capital. I also worked with Tesla and scaled operations globally. Elon told me good job. Now, I show people how to make money and save the world at the same time. Over the past couple of years, I've been digging into investing in this space and exploring opportunities to deploy capital and invest capital and make that capital grow and also save the planet. And these are the stories that need to be told because it is possible that you can do both. You can make money and save the world at the same time. So you know, by listening here, you are now a Climate Avenger. Avenge the climate with us. Welcome in. Here today, we have Aaron Davis and Dimitri Gershenson of Enduring Planet. Very excited to have them on today. Their company is doing something that's near and dear to my heart as a climate tech founder. And with that, I'll let them kick it off. Uh, Dimitri, can you give us a, a quick introduction of yourself? Sure. I'm Dimitri. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Enduring Planet. I've been working in climate all of my career and in the impact finance side of, of the equation for about eight years. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Elena. Thank you. And Erin. Elena, I'm Erin Davis, the COO and co-founder of Enduring Planet. I spent the last 10 years-ish in impact investing um, across microfinance and climate tech. Fantastic. Thank you both for being on today. So let's just dive right in. Give us an overview of Enduring Planet. What are you building? Yeah, so at Enduring Planet, we're we're looking to address some pretty key financing gaps in the climate ecosystem. Uh, and we provide fast, flexible, and founder-friendly capital to climate entrepreneurs. Today, we do that through two credit instruments. So we're, we're lenders in this space as opposed to VCs or equity investors. And we provide capital one through what we call the Climate Grant Advance, which is sort of our flagship product, where we uh, help folks navigate the funding delays or complex funding cycles associated with state or federal grants in climate. There's plus 20 billion a year of state federal grants in the space. So there's quite a lot of appetite for, you know, what we call sort of factoring for, for these payments. And then we also have a revenue-based financing instrument where we provide growth capital to post-revenue companies in climate. Um, and generally, that product is best suited for predictable revenue businesses. So either recurring revenue uh, companies, you know, software, services, hybrid models that include both. Um, we can even do RBF with small hardware as long as there is some recurring revenue component. Oftentimes, people sell hardware and have a SaaS business also. Um, and then it can also work in in context where folks have lots of forward contracts that have predictable payments. And so, so those are the two products. We've done close to $7 million in transactions in our, basically in our first year of operations, a little over 20 companies that we've supported to date. And we're uh, just getting started. Aaron, anything you want to add about, maybe talk a little bit about our, um, 
our DEIJ focus as well? Yeah, so we have um, kind of an additional layer, um, especially as we're targeting impact investors into our facilities um, and also just addressing the funding gap of um, diverse entrepreneurs. Um, And so we look for, um, you know, companies led by diverse entrepreneurs managed by have a significant amount of their employees that are diverse or um, are their product specifically addresses an underserved community. Um, And to date, more than 80% of our companies hit at least one of our um, DEIJ targets. And just for the listeners, can you define DEIJ? (laughs) Diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Perfect. Thank you. We want to make sure to hit all of the acronyms, especially in funding. I feel like there's a lot there. <laughs> um, fantastic. It's, just, it's acronym soup. That's our whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And even in energy, like DOE and DARPA and EERE, that's that's the life sometimes. So in terms of how you've structured the company, I assume there's a giant pool of money that you have accessed in order to lend out. I guess, how is that structured kind of on the back end? So I wish it were giant. I think, you know, we're still getting started. Uh, one day it will be giant. Um, but we, the, w- the way that our business operates today is that we raise capital from uh, currently mostly uh, impact investors. So family offices, private foundations, corporate foundations, staffs. Um, that money is raised via a note offering. So folks effectively buy a note, they get paid on a predictable schedule, interest, principal, et cetera. And then we then have that capital to deploy. And it, it works for us because we sort of align the sets, i.e. the loans that we make with the capital that we source to sort of the timing, the tenors, the pricing, everything works out. And we are right now working to stand up our second vehicle. So the first one's almost fully deployed. And The second one will have a similar structure, but we're looking at uh, a more open-ended model where we can continuously raise capital rather than having these discrete pools that have, you know, closing timelines, et cetera. So that's, that's how we're, that's how our base is structured today. I always like to explore that balance because there's that, uh, you have your customers, but then you also have your customers, which are the people who's the, the note holders and then also the, the loan, um, the people who take the loans as well. And so I always find that interesting with funds, those dynamics and who within the company tends to follow up with each of them or that communication between the two and that, that, that process of, of the two-sided marketplace. We have probably even an added challenge, which is that we're, we're a venture backed startup. And so we have a third customer base, which is our VCs. And so um, we, we sort of, distribute that we we have this kind of i don't know an allocation of responsibility that i think really works for us it's it's maybe a little different than other folks have approached before but on the deal side uh, i sort of run sales up until the point that our company applies formally applies mm-hmm. and then aaron takes over and does all of the investment process basically and then i periodically pop in and nudge if, if nudging is required um, I manage all of our VC relationships and Aaron manages all of our lender relationships. And so we sort of need this 
this split that um, works for us. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very thankful not to be in the, the VC seat. <laughs> <laughs> no hard feelings. There's no hard feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very thankful for the for the work that Dimitri does. I, I'm continually impressed by his persistence. <laughs> I appreciate hearing this because it's the the there's like the front end person that is out there doing a lot of the like extrovert go catching the elephants type of thing, and then I also very much appreciate the person in the back end who's like doing the nitty gritty. I it's. It's so important as founders to find that right person. Um, so I'd love to know how you two met each other and started working together, building out Enduring Planet. So I had founded another company called Social Investment Managers and Advisors and Impact Fund Manager um, that served emerging markets. Um, so we were setting up various funds uh, to serve the microfinance and solar community in Africa and South Asia. And at the time, Dimitri was working at Facebook, now Meta, um, in their, um, I don't know, what was the department climate? We, we just called it the Energy Access Team, yeah. <laughs> energy Access Team. Um, and they were using catalytic capital to help fund managers launch funds and provide they had more appetite for risk, I guess, to help help leverage and more capital into this space. Um, and so I would periodically ask Dimitri for <laughs> said catalytic capital, and he would periodically turn me down. Um, and so that's that's how we sort of got to know each other. Um, and you know, I went on actually maternity leave um, with my first. Done, and Dimitri reached out asking if I knew anybody in the climate and debt space. Um, and I said, yeah, I do myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we just kind of started from there. And yeah, no hard feelings about the no investment. <laughs> definitely no hard feelings. Uh, definitely, definitely no. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, in, in my case, when I started thinking about this problem back in 2021 and it, it started to become apparent that the world really needed a specialized credit player focused on climate. Like the, 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 this needs to exist. Um, there's like very consistent evidence that there's a lot of appetite for credit in this ecosystem. There's specific use cases where this form of financing is sort of best suited for the need. Uh, and, you know, if you want to build a credit business, I think you kind of need a credit person. And uh, as much as I like to, to pretend that I know finance, Erin um, really knows credit. And so for, for me, building this company without a co-founder who, who wasn't, you know, Aaron had raised close to $200 million at SEMA and done, I don't know, 40, 50 transactions that were all sorts of complicated. And um, that was the exact kind of expertise we needed to, to, to really get Enduring Planet off the ground. You got to have the right legitimate partners, I feel like, um, especially in a finance climate tech startup, uh, so that it is much easier to go out, raise that initial capital from VCs or approach funds, all of that. So it's a smart approach. And I, I love that 
I love sharing these types of stories because it really just, it comes from an email. Hey, do you know someone? And then inevitably when you send those emails, you get somebody <laughs> raising your, their hand. And I love that. I'm so grateful. I think for me, the, the, the thing that was sort of unexpected is that, you know, I knew Aaron's ground and, and sort of skill set and experience, but I didn't really have much of a sense of her personality and her values until we really started to, to talk and engage. And, and even still, like I'm often really amazed by the complementarity of our sort of like the, the not tangible parts of ourselves, you know? Um, and I think that there are often situations where one of us is, is like ready to like pull all our hair out and like jump out a window and the other person <laughs> is the, is the anchor. And then like the roles will, I mean, most of the time I'm the one ready to jump out a window and Aaron's the anchor, <laughs> but, but there are times, there are times where the roles are reversed. And I, and I, I think that that is like a really that was a big lesson for me is that oftentimes when you're building these relationships, when you're building a team, the temperament and the sort of like worldview and the perspective, those end up mattering oftentimes way more than like the person's operational jobs, because a lot of these situations, you're, you're not doing something that either of you have ever done before, or at least not directly. And what matters is like, can you collectively solve problems? And I think that's, that's something that I've, I've just been, I don't know, it's been really awesome. How did you start to test that temperament? Because there's like the initial email and now you're here. What were some of those things you did to start to test that before signing papers per se? Well, I, I mean, from my end and Aaron probably has her own take on how this played out, but I, I, we, we sort of did the, the interview thing, but we also just had a lot of conversations. I mean, I think it took us probably three months to decide that this was something that we wanted to do together. And I think we spent probably more time than most people do talking about the, the how and the why we care and the sort of like things that matter to us. Um, everything down to like how many hours a week we want to work and how much time we want to spend with our families and um, what is the kind of environment we want to create. Because I think Oftentimes, the, the places where I've seen other founders really struggle is that they'll find someone who's like, you know, they have the perfect background to do the job, and but they don't spend really any time like talking over these issues. And then like they start building a company together, they might hire a few people, and like it's going great. And then like shit happens because it always does. And then they react in opposing ways, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, we never really prepared for this. And I think, I mean, some of it just you just have to take a shot you have to take a little risk and hope that like you made the right choice and that when problems do arise you'll handle them um the way that you expect but i, I don't know aaron uh, that was like my take from from my view of it i don't know if yours was the same yeah i mean i think it's basically the same you know like i said i was two three months postpartum um after you know having like a, a premature baby and so just like somebody who you know a man who was like looking for a female partner like co-founder and totally aware of Dimitri has a five-year-old daughter totally aware of like being a new mom and and yet still choosing to partner with me I just felt like you know there was some sometimes where we were having conversations like oh 
sorry, I'm just going to like tilt the camera up because I need to breastfeed. <laughs> like, you know, so it's just that I, I don't, I don't know. Like there's an, an intangible there that I just felt supported that I could still pursue my career. And cause I really wasn't ready to go back to work. And I actually, like we decided that I would go back a little bit earlier than I anticipated um, just because <laughs> there was very little runway. So it was, it was kind of a risk in and of itself. Um, but yeah, I just, I just felt like it was the, the right decision because of those you know, those signals from Dimitri that it was that it was okay to be a new mom and be an entrepreneur. Along those lines, uh, just thinking about whole self when building a climate tech startup, um, what are some of the ways that that you do stay grounded and engaged even when things are hitting the fan or there is family stuff happening? One thing is just kind of like giving the space for feeling the way you feel like not every day is going to be great. Usually it's Mondays aren't so great for us. <laughs> and then, you know, the week always ends on a, on a higher note, but I think just allowing people to emote and then, and then go into action or, you know, have a more problem solving approach. I think just, just kind of like work life, balance. I think you just allow everybody to manage what they need to manage. And there's, there's no micromanagement. Like, did you have your butt in the seat for, you know, eight hours of the day for, you know, five days of the week? There's, you know, we're not doing time cards or anything like that. It's just like, are you getting your work done? Are we like all moving in the same direction? I think those are two big things for me. I think one of the things that we did early on is that we we had a very intentional conversation about the kind of business we wanted to build and how it would operate day to day. And I think that there is there are two distinct camps of sort of like startup, I don't know, talking heads or whatever, right? Like there are the folks who say, hey, if you're not working 80 hours a week and like working yourself to the bone, you're gonna lose, you're gonna fail. Like startups have to that's like the only way to succeed i just think that's wrong like i just don't think that's true and i think that oftentimes what's really hard is separating like confirmation bias from reality um there are plenty of examples of very successful companies where people worked how much they wanted to work and like i think that for us you know we are also very thoughtful about how we allocate our time and we're very ruthless about how we prioritize. And I think that allows us to, I don't know, kind of work smarter. In, in, in that same vein, I think when issues arise, like the, the response is not, oh shit, how am I gonna handle this? Because you have to take a day off or because of like whatever situation, it's okay, like this is a priority. Your family is your priority, that is okay. And like, maybe this just doesn't happen on the timeline that we wanted. And that's also okay. Like it's not the end of the fucking world. And sometimes, sometimes other people have to do a job that they didn't expect to do that day. And that's also okay. And I, I think this like flexibility that's built around a set of priorities where like grinding is not the number one priority, I think 
really works for us. And, you know, maybe in three years, like you'll, we'll talk again and you'll be like, how'd that go for you? And I'll be like, man, I really wish we worked 80 hours a week, every week for the last four years, but I doubt it. And, 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 you know, like I have, I have a lot of habits that I've built up over the last few years that I actually don't like. Like I find myself more on my phone at home, like checking email and checking Slack and like doing work stuff when I should be not because in I the think shower. That, yeah, in the shower, <laughs> on the toilet, when I'm hanging out with my kid, like, like lots of places where I probably shouldn't be on my phone. And I think the the thing that helps is that like nobody on my team is like pushing me to do that. You know, it's 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 all on me. Mm-hmm. And and it's always on all of us. Like it's our our individual choices um that really matter. And I think like as long as you put forward that this collective vision of like, hey, we want to build a company that we want to work at forever. Like we don't want to build a company where people burn out in two years. How do we do that? And that that's like kind of and we talk about it all the time, like have regular check ins about that process all the time. And it's necessary because things evolve and change and you can like walk up to that line of going too far or, or tight, start to tiptoe towards burnout. And you have to find a way to bring yourself back into balance. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into climate, what that journey was. Erin, do you mind kicking us off? Sure. It might be a little long-winded. I feel like I never take a traditional approach to anything. I remember I was taking a micro, my first microfinance class in, in um, grad school and we were doing a pitch competition with an impact fund manager. And afterwards I asked him, Oh, how can I get into microfinance? And he told me to go work on wall street for 10 years. <laughs> like, ah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but before that, um, actually I wanted to be a doctor. I think I always, you know, I was pre-med and undergrad and worked, um, in brain tumor research post undergrad. And I just really, I don't know. I wanted to be a doctor for like the people aspect of it. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think I liked the actual lifestyle of it or had the motivation for it. Um, so when I finally kind of took a turn away from that, um, I did some soul searching and I, and I discovered microfinance, um, and just thought it was a really cool concept. I like, you know, the pragmatism of kind of addressing poverty with a business solution that has more of a long-term um, approach. And so from there, I got my master's in international development in um, and with a focus on, you know, trying to get into microfinance. Realized I couldn't do microfinance without a business background, which I didn't have. I was a Spanish um, and pre-med undergrad, so that wasn't going to help. Um, so I pursued the dual degree MBA, master's in international development, got into microfinance, um, I worked at um, um, a microfinance institution in Tonga for a summer and then landed a job at Finca. Um, Jill Large has banks in, I think, 23 countries. And from there, we started looking at what other products do people need aside from access to finance um, and kind of the next most viable um, business solution was solar. Um, and so we we started looking at solar companies 
And then I ended up leaving Finca to start SEMA. And uh, we, we launched our first fund in solar and microfinance. Um, and yeah, from there, it's just kind of, I mean, I think everything has a, an underlying tone um, of climate. You know, climate impacts everything or everything is impacted by, by climate. So it was just a really um, important space for me. And then especially after having a child and, and just knowing that, you know, the world is not going to look the same as he grows up. I, I feel it's my responsibility to do something, even my small part. I know you said it's not a traditional path, but it's like, it's very logical and, and intentional. So that's <laughs> refreshing. I mean, it's not 10 years in Wall Street, but it's like, okay, let me just get these things in line and ask people how I can get there. And you got there and, and growing a second company. How about you, Dimitri? Mine is, I think, less, less exciting. I, I, uh, I went to college at Rutgers University in New Jersey and sort of ended up at the ag school there by virtue of well, luck or, or whatever. And my my brother had actually attended the same school, was in the same honors program, and ended up doing applied ecology for his undergrad. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. I tried journalism. I tried anthropology. Um, I, I, for a minute, I thought I was going to be a forensic anthropologist, um, which I was really excited about until I learned that at the time, at least, there was only one full-time employed forensic anthropologists in the entire country. And they worked for the FBI or the Smithsonian or something. And everyone else was like an anthropology professor who dabbled. And that, I was like, I don't want to be a professor. I want to solve crimes. Uh, so that didn't work out. And finally, I, I had this conversation with my honors program advisor who was like, you know, you probably need to pick a major. Like <laughs> you, you're like getting far enough ahead where like gen ed isn't going to work for you. You have to shit or get off the pot. And I was like, okay, well, you know, my brother did applied ecology. I'll just do applied ecology. And I, I also ended up minoring in, in Spanish, weirdly enough. I don't know. Maybe that's like, that's the thing that actually brought me and Aaron together is our common love for Spanish. But when I finished undergrad, I joined the Peace Corps. And I think that's where I sort of made a very conscious choice because initially my, my plan was like, I'm going to solve I want to save like degraded ecosystems. I want to like, you know, I want to save the earth. And I think while I was in the Peace Corps, I realized that like, I, that's not actually what I cared about. And, and frankly, I think this notion that like, it is for us to save the planet is kind of ridiculous. Like, like ecosystems disappear, get created on, on such different timescales than we even operate. And like, frankly, we could nuke this whole planet into non-existence and like, a, a few hundred million years from now, there would be life again. And like, it would be like, as if we never existed, it wouldn't really matter. But what will matter is that we will have suffered in that process and, and people do suffer. And specifically there's large swaths of humanity that suffered disproportionately to others. And that to me was like really kind of unacceptable. And, and that it drove me into first working on energy access where I spent close to a decade. Uh, and then, you know, for me, I kind of got tired of that ecosystem and community. It's like a very small world with a lot of talk and not often as much action as I would have liked. But 
the climate seemed to me like a obviously very related. It's like the that's energy access is just a subtopic of climate. Um, but it just seemed like a like a bigger universe, one that was growing on a different trajectory, one where action was starting to shift. Like I think the last decade has really seen a, a very different approach to addressing the climate crisis. And that to me was really exciting. And so I, I just, I kind of back in early 2020, I said, okay, like the, the climate crisis as a whole is where I'm going to dedicate the rest of it. You know, I've kind of always worked in climate, but now I'm really working in climate, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that both of you were more on the development side and then now building in the U.S. for U.S. startups. And I find that really interesting. Um, I had a similar trajectory. I thought I was going to do like international relations and development. And that was I, I had a minor in peace studies in undergrad. You know, and and now to be in like for profit, scalable solutions. Can you? <laughs> Can you both kind of talk about that? Because I think that a lot of people start in that that universe and then realize that they need it. There's a different solution. Yeah. I mean, look, I think for me, working in emerging markets and developing countries on community development helped me understand a lot of the nuance around building any climate solution. And I think that for me, the those worlds aren't so distinct. And if anything, like if you are able to build a business in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in some ways, it's way easier to build a business in the US. And, and so there's a lot of these lessons that come out of those experiences around navigating community stakeholders, around engaging with government, around you know being thoughtful about your financing stack in a, in a, in a sort of like a space of scarcity. There's like all of these lessons that then are are very firmly applicable. Um, I mean, you know, honestly, like the reason that I ended up focusing on the U.S. was not was was largely driven by the fact that I had a kid and like traveling six months out of the year was not. It just wasn't reasonable anymore, and so I I needed to work closer to home. And I think also, you know, I often had this debate with folks where they were like, oh, there's so many problems here. Why aren't you working on problems here? Why are you working on problems over there? And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, there's greater need and blah, blah, blah. I've had all these answers. And then at one point I was like, wait, why am I not working on problems over here? Like, I am here. My network is here. I can have a lot of impact here. Like, and I don't have to travel like that. That's also great for climate. Like, I, I, I <laughs> the only time I get on a plane right now is basically to see Erin, you know, once a year. And she comes here once a year. And... I've been to like one or two conferences and that actually, I think is, is important. Like I think oftentimes folks who work in the space, they're like constantly gallivanting around the world. And I'm like, dude, I think like the emissions footprint of your business might actually be bigger than the reduction that you've actually generated in the last, you know, five years. Like you should probably think about that. Uh, Aaron. Yeah. I mean, I guess there has been a lot of, crossover for me, um, not only in kind of investor network. I think in both in development and in what we're doing now, there's there's a network of people that you share values with. So, you know, as I'm raising debt, it's, you know, we raised our first fund relatively quickly because I think it was an, an easy sell, you know, <laughs> like people... Investors are interested in 
climate diversity and a fixed income opportunity. You know, like those those three things make for an attractive and attractive investment. I don't know if I'm answering the question quite right, but I just I feel like you know, I've basically taken the ten years that I spent in international, you know, emerging markets and and can apply the same stuff here. I mean, arguably there's been some there's been some bigger you know, issues or scares just because like these are really early stage companies um that do weird things sometimes, you know, and you're just kind of like not not totally prepared for it. Um, but I think the the proximity and, you know, just being able to pick up the phone and call our portfolio companies is really nice. And I think being able to help them and introduce them to our network, I, I feel mm-hmm. like that's an often cited compliment that um, our portfolio companies say is that they're just appreciative of, you know, the connections that we're able to get them, which, um, you know, it's just harder. Everything's just harder internationally in some ways, if you're, especially if you're just planted in the U S that's interesting to hear about that value add with your portfolio companies. I think that's what companies think they're going to get with some VCs or even syndicates, things like that. And that isn't what they get. And so that network, those introductions, can sometimes be everything to an early stage company. So I love to hear that you're doing that extra value add there. I mean, this is actually something that I find really surprising and maybe incredibly frustrating is that on a daily basis, we have companies come to us who are backed by the leading investors in climate. And they're asking us for introductions to other VCs. And we, you know, we share deal flow with close to 300 now, other investors, mm-hmm. lenders, angels, syndicates, institutional funds, family offices, like you name it. We also have 50-ish kind of like semi-formal partners, but also like a whole community of folks who do everything from design to fractional CFO to modeling to whatever. And like, to me, a good VC has good a good network. Like that's what they, what, you know, they have operational experience expertise and a good network like that's what they bring to the table other than money and it is just shocking to me often that's not the case and i think that like it does a disservice to this community where investors they they don't feel a responsibility to bring that to the table like your money isn't special bro it's just not so why are you here and and i think that that's something where we really aspire to bring way more to the table than just capital. And we're constantly trying to explore ways in which we can provide added value, whether it's through content, whether it's through partnerships, whether it's through our community and our network. And and we're like, we're just getting started. I mean, we're like, we're small potatoes compared to some of these larger institutions. And sometimes, you know, our, our community, and these are like, not even just folks that we lend money to. I, I made probably a hundred introductions to investors in the last month for companies that have nothing to do with Endurin other than just being our friends. And I don't know, I, I just, I have a lot of like, a lot of frustration about how some of these things work in practice. I agree. And the network in climate tech, it's, it's deep and wide and people say yes 
I'm going to help or yeah, let me know. Or how can I be helpful? And it's, there's not always that follow through. So even seeing your weekly tweets on Fridays, like what can we celebrate in climate tech this week? That's a small but meaningful way to amplify the wins in this community and then just be aware of what other people are doing. So then we could all help each other. Yeah. Yeah. I need to do that more consistently. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beacon of joy. It's the high, it's how you get from a case of the Mondays to a a good end of the week kind of Friday. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I'd like to circle back to funding and why VC funding isn't right for every climate tech startup. And part of that as well is also just sharing with this community the other types of funding that are out there. I, we didn't really cover that from a high level. Yeah. So, look, I think maybe the first thing to say, and I would, I, I would sort of push back on, on how you frame the question, which is like, I don't, I don't think we look at capital as an either or. And there are times when businesses that are venture backed could take other capital. Oftentimes, <laughs> they should take other yes. capital to complement the venture capital that they have raised or will be raising. Mm-hmm. And there are also times when there are businesses that can't raise venture capital and therefore they have to be creative. But I, I, I don't think that it's like our money is not necessarily an alternative to VC funding. It might be to some portion of the VC funding that you thought you should raise. But in the end, like money is just money. And the way that you should think about financing is to align your spend and investments as a business with the capital that you take in. Because, you know, for example, uh, venture capital does not require repayment until you exit, which means that if you're going to spend money on things that don't generate a predictable return, that are high risk investments in R&D, you know, hiring staff that isn't selling, like there's a lot of spaces where VC money is the best form of financing your business. On the other hand, if you, let's say, have a big grant that you just won from the California Energy Commission, and you're like, hey, uh, I'm going to get paid four to six months after I do the work and have to expend the money. Crap, I got to go raise some money to go execute on this you know, $5 million grant. Well, raising venture capital at that point is, is just like not the way. Because it's a very predictable receivable. You know when you're going to get it. And as long as you can sort of, you make the margin work, you can easily take on capital like our grant advance to finance that effort. And now you're a year, two years, three years down the line, your technology is way more mature. And now if you go raise venture capital, you get, I don't know, 10X evaluation. And so I think it's a question of like aligning the money you take in with the money that goes out. And, And that's something that I think most entrepreneurs don't actually think about. And they, they unfortunately also often operate in these ecosystems where venture capital, fundraisers, et cetera, those are touted. It's like, that's what goes in the press. You know, like TechCrunch mm-hmm. writes articles about your last round. TechCrunch does not write articles about the last time you raised debt, which is bullshit. It's, just, it's, all, it's, just, it's all money. Like it's all money. And venture capital is like the most expensive money you could ever take, mm-hmm. ever. And so- I, I think we need to start having a more open dialogue about about capital as a tool and about like how capital can serve the needs of the of the people who it's actually supposed to serve. I think like oftentimes we forget that what matters is what the entrepreneur needs, it's what the company needs, 
this is what the investor needs. It's not what the LPs mm -hmm. need. Like we, we kind of prioritize the wrong stakeholders, I think, in a lot of these conversations. Aaron, was there anything you wanted to add? No, I think it covered it. I guess there's definitely tools to kind of educate yourself as an entrepreneur. And, and you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are just scared of what they don't know or just, yeah, just are brainwashed or whatever. They just think that like VC is the only, only thing out there. And so I think the, you know, being scared of what you don't know is preventing people from from essentially keeping more of their company in the end. Um, and so I think there's simple tools out there. I know um, Village Capital is putting together a educational tool and it was kind of like a mm -hmm. yes, no, like I need money for marketing. I need money for growth. Like, and, and then it would tell you like, oh, maybe you should get some RBS money or, you know, something, something else, or you have a specific project to fund, like, you know, maybe you go for some venture debt, you know, I think it really boils down to just kind of getting comfortable or getting somebody on your team, you know, to help you kind of navigate that capitalization of your company. Because what I really like to think about is that if you keep more of your company equity for yourself, you know, from the beginning, then as you grow your team, you can give more of it to your team um, instead of giving it to people who are already rich. <laughs> Absolutely. And you mentioned RBF. Can you define that for us? Revenue-based financing. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I think, well, maybe one thing I will add is like, to be clear, we are a venture-backed company. Most of the companies we work with Many of the companies we work with are venture-backed companies. There is a time and a place and an incredible value that comes from venture capital. But I think that the, the problem is like how we have the conversation and where the focus goes. And also oftentimes where people seek perspective, because what often happens is a company will raise some venture capital and then they'll be like, oh, we want to go raise that. And they'll go talk to their investors who, by the way, like unless they own a majority of your company, do not get to decide what kind of capital you raise, but oftentimes it feels that way. And so they'll go to their investors and they'll say, hey, we're going to raise this debt. And their investors will be like, no, 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 don't do that. That's like bad for cash flow and growth. Why don't you just take our money instead? Well, the thing is that those investors have very different incentives than you do. And the incentive for them is allocation. They want to own more of your business. They want to take the advantage of owning more of your business when the time comes. And so I think that like, what entrepreneurs need to do is say, okay, like, cool, I get that. But like, here's how I'm weighing these things. Here's how I'm thinking about cost of capital. Here's how I'm thinking about the impacts on cash flow. Here's how I see this debt supporting runway and growth. And like, I think that needs to be the discussion. And in the end, entrepreneurs need to make decisions that best serve their business, not their investors. And oftentimes those are not the same thing. Yeah. When Utility API got the Sunshot Grant, our VC investors were delighted because there wasn't additional dilution. They're like, this is like free capital. This is amazing. And we did have the venture capital to do the work and then get the grant money in. And that that balanced out. But we didn't have hardware expenditures, those types of things. And so it, it did work out that way. And 
the value of this public capital that is non-dilutive has been so instrumental in climate tech as well. I'd love for for you to dive in just a little bit deeper on you mentioned the number earlier it was 80 billion did you say of of capital that's available in grants? So the the number we've seen is 20 um but I think it, I think 20 is it's is kind of an underestimate because the IRA has a lot of new programs under it that will further grow that. And that's that's across both state and federal sources. So that includes states like California and New York, mm-hmm. which have very large grant programs for climate, you know, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington. Like there's a lot of places where the flows of grant funding are actually very substantial. Like in, mm-hmm. in California alone, it's billions of dollars across the California Energy Commission, Cal Fire, Cal EPA. There's like so many, I mean, it's like almost an entire country's worth of grant funding. And so yeah. um, we expect those numbers to continue to grow. And that's just in the US. So that's not accounting for Europe, Australia. There's like a lot of other markets where there's quite substantial grant funds for mm-hmm. decarbonization, adaptation and resilience, like all the issues that matter. Interesting. I hadn't even put it together for other countries as well. I just because we're here on the West Coast or in the U.S., so many climate tech companies are able to access, say, even California's pool of capital for growing climate tech companies and solutions. For the listeners, though, I I do want to like kind of just high level overview. California, New York, other states and the U.S. government has billions of dollars. They say we want to spend it on something like. We want to spend it on climate solutions. Give us your proposals and startups can describe what they're doing to get funding and define really a project. And then they complete that project and they have milestones. And when they complete a milestone, they get a chunk of cash from the government. And that is our tax dollars at work. And I love that because we're literally building businesses that scale, employing people, saving the climate and That's what we can hope our tax dollars are doing. So say for an early stage climate entrepreneur who's been enticed by the glitter of VC money, what would you want to tell them about the non-dilutive capital out there for them? Look, I think that in the end, it is up to every founder to do the homework and understand what financing options are available to their business, at what time they're appropriate for their business. And what are the like costs and benefits of each? And I think oftentimes folks really focus on uh, sort of like very high level terms without really thinking about the nuance. And the, the kind of the main characteristics that I often guide folks to think about are one, dilution. Mm-hmm. Two is the cost of capital. And with venture capital, you have to think about the effective cost of capital. So you have to compare, you know, ideally on like an IRR basis, right? So cost of capital. There's the security associated with the capital, i.e., like, do you have to provide collateral? Do you have to do a personal guarantee? Are there liens on your IP? Like, you know, whatever. The complexity of the, of the, both the transaction and the, like, for the fact, because oftentimes I think what folks, even with grants, people are like, oh, it's free money. It's super easy. I'm just going to apply and then it's done. And it's like, you know, I know people who spend 2,500 bucks a month reporting to the California Energy Commission on their grant. It is yeah. not free money, right? And also the like the structure of actually receiving those funds oftentimes looks very different than what you anticipate. And so like really understanding the complexity. And then I think the last piece is speed. And this is where I think oftentimes we 
end up playing a role because if you look at grant funding, oftentimes, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of grants are milestone based. A lot of them are just reimbursement. And often those reimbursement timelines are net 90 if you're lucky, right? So like you'll submit an invoice to the agency, they have some processing time, and then they have a payment time. And sometimes if there's an error, if there's a if there's a discrepancy, if there's some missing documentation, it resets the clock. And so what a lot of companies run into, especially when they're winning a grant for the first time, is they'll they'll you know do the work for the first three months and then they'll be like, we're gonna submit our first invoice and it's a million dollars and it's gonna be awesome and we're gonna get paid tomorrow. It's gonna be great. And then like six months later, they still haven't gotten paid. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard, like really, really hard. And so I think that. As long as founders go into this process thoughtfully and say, okay, like I'm actually weighing these options, apples to apples, then they can start to like really understand what it means. And so, yeah, just like think of capital as any other part of your business. Like if you spend, mm-hmm. you know, 12 hours this week thinking about carbon markets because like you might sell offsets, like maybe put the same amount of time to work on understanding the capital options available to your business, because frankly, it's going to have a much bigger impact on how you operate over the next decade than like whether or not you use the right methodology in some context, right? Like, like these things are just as important as the product you build, as the people you hire, like the money you take in can shape the trajectory of your company forever. So crucial. And I'm, I'm glad we have this all down. This is going to be a great resource for entrepreneurs going forward. With that, I'd love to open it up and see if there's anything else, any other topic you just mentioned, carbon markets. Are there, is there a particular topic that's on your mind right now that you'd like to kind of put a little bit more out in the world about that topic? I think maybe one thing that's just worth talking about, and this is more like aimed at the capital providers who might listen to the show as opposed to the entrepreneurs Yep. Is is this I think this notion of like intersectionality and we talk about this a lot and we we sort of mentioned this earlier in terms of, you know, we have a diversity, equity, inclusion and justice lens to our lending. I think it's time capital allocators in this space really stand up for some of these values that I think are are like inextricably linked to climate. Like I don't I don't think you can do real climate work if you are not addressing inequality because mm-hmm. oftentimes those, those, like, either the benefits aren't equitably distributed, the costs are not equitably distributed, and oftentimes that inequality continues to contribute to these problems or it can contribute to a lack of success for a lot of these solutions. And so it, it's really not that hard. Like, it's really not that hard. And I think oftentimes people have these uh, sort of like, well, you know, our goal is to, like, make a return for our LPs and whatever, whatever people say, whatever their excuse is. And like all of the evidence in the market is like, Hey, if you take this approach, you will do better. And so it's actually like, it it fails your fiduciary responsibility as a capital manager to not apply this lens. And I think it's time people take it seriously. And we have a long way to go. Like we're not perfect. And we're also like two privileged white people running this business. Like we, we get it, but if we can have, you know, over 80% of our portfolio meet one of three fairly reasonable diversity, equity, and inclusion criteria, then like we shouldn't be seeing 5%, 2%, 1% of money flowing to underrepresented founders. It's just like should not be happening. This is a dynamic that I really don't 
understand um, in terms of just, especially with like female entrepreneurs. Um, I don't know the numbers exactly, but there's a lot of female led businesses out there. And why is that number so low? And even for us, like, why do we have so few applications from women-led businesses? You know, I'm constantly trying to reach out to, you know, affinity networks and, and you know, do more of that, that outreach. Um, but still, in our portfolio, we really lack on the, the um, female entrepreneur side. And I just, you know, I just can't figure it out. Um, and it's and it's really kind of bothering me um, because we know we know the numbers and you know I I was having a conversation with a potential um, portfolio company led by a woman and something that we talked about that I think really stuck with me is is this same concept of women, you know, not applying for jobs if they don't meet like a hundred percent of the criteria. Like I wonder if the same thing is happening in in like the venture world or or just like capital raising in general. It's like, oh I don't think I would qualify. So you don't even take the shot or you don't make the ask. Um and I think that's that could be happening. I just I don't know. It's something that I've been diving into as well. And where that has kind of led, it's um, a lot of sociology books and um, (laughs) even like rooting it in like white male God America. And it's been a journey. And I am listening to several books all at the same time on this topic. Um, Yeah, it's something I encountered too. I can count on my hand how many other female founders I would interact with when I was a female founder as well. So um, I think it's it's good to to call it out here and kind of wonder, like wonder out loud what is happening. And I think part of that as well is I think a lot of people can be afraid of saying the wrong thing. And I like the disclaimer, Dimitri, that you said is like, we're doing what we can. We know we're not perfect. And I think that's all we can do. And also, how can, okay, so you have a fund manager that says, I would like to do better at this. What can I read and what can I do to get started? What would you recommend? Ah, uh, man. I mean, one, there's, there's a ton of literature out there around thinking through diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice as part of your investment practice. Two institutions that I've seen produce really good work are Kmore Capital and Calvert. A lot of it actually boils down to something very simple, which is that you decide to care mm-hmm. and you decide to care as like a core priority, right? So you say, okay, this is a thing that is going to become like a core part of our business. And we're going to make decisions around this priority. And mm-hmm. so that then adjusts how you source deals. It adjusts how you underwrite deals. It adjusts how you engage with entrepreneurs. You know, like in our case, we realized uh, pretty early that a, a driver of how underrepresented founders interact with capital is through their network, right? Like the pro- part of the problem is that oftentimes these, these networks and sort of like communities of warm intros aren't equitably distributed. 
And so then the question is like, okay, well, how do we get warm introductions? Like how do founders get introduced to us? And that's why we launched our scout program. And so, and we are very selective about who we pick for our scout program. And we have an incredibly diverse community of scouts because we also know that if all of your scouts are white dudes, they're just gonna send you more white dudes, right? And so like, if you don't want a portfolio of all white dude led companies, then that your sourcing has to reflect that. And, you know, we partner with a lot of the leading accelerators in the space, many of whom have diversity, equity, and inclusion lens approaches also, you know, Elemental, uh, Greentown Labs, like uh, Lacey, they all have this, these efforts baked in. And I think that like, in the end, it just boils down to, to giving a fuck. Like, do you care? Do you truly care? Or are you just paying lip service? And if you don't truly care, maybe it makes sense to reflect on why. And what does that say about you as an investor and about the role that you're playing in this ecosystem? This is a perfect transition to call to action. So you have a scout program. What else can the listeners of this podcast do to engage with Adoring Planet? So potential portfolio companies, we'd love, you know, if you need some funding, you can apply on our website. It's about 10 minutes for revenue-based financing or climate grant advance. Um, investors, we're um, actively um, exploring Fund 2, and we'll be hopefully launching that um, fundraising period very shortly. So anybody interested in the intersection of climate diversity and, and having a fixed income opportunity in your portfolio, um, get in touch. And then Dimitri is our, our king of social media, so I let him, let him talk about that. I think for us, the, the, the sort of other opportunities beyond like money in and money out, right, are just folks who can support this community, who want to partner, who want to be available. Like, we want to know who you are. We, we are building a community that supports every climate entrepreneur. And we think that's, you know, it, th this problem won't get solved through individual action. It will get solved through collective action. And so um, we want to bring a lot of those resources together. So if you are, you know, if you are a rational CFO who's trying to focus on climate, if you're a designer, if you're a bookkeeper, if you're a recruiter, like, all of those types of players, especially if you're like, hey, I'm going to spend all of my time thinking about this problem and I'm supporting entrepreneurs and this problem. Like, we want to talk to you. We want to know who you are. Perfect. I'm hoping this podcast can help that community as well. Thank you for joining me. By gaining this knowledge, you are now a Climate Avenger. As we all know, knowledge is power. So avenge the climate with us. Let's get the word out. Rate review, subscribe, so others can find this podcast. We are new, so every share is even more important. Help us grow and share it with the communities that you're a member of, whether it's climate or investing Slack groups, LinkedIn groups. And if you don't mind, share it with a friend or colleague so they can also join us in eventing the climate, especially if they work in climate, are a climate entrepreneur or an angel investor. If you are an accredited investor, join our rolling fund and syndicate on AngelList. If you have questions or want to talk with us, email team at climateavengers.com and Kyle or I will respond. Put your money where your values are. Make money and save the world at the same time. Let's get more capital into climate. To find out more about Climate Avengers, head over to resourcelabs.co slash climateavengers 
and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes and resources. Until next time, avenge on.